one of the uh, questions, issues that comes up in the um, uh, discussion groups, in the conversations, uh, predictably enough, as it does uh, with, uh, I think, every retreat I've ever led or been part of, um, at uh, around about this time, sort of middle of the retreat, heading towards the second part, then uh, life after the concept of life after the retreat, the other world sort of starts to come into the picture, and um, uh, one of the the principles that uh, I say was very uh, very important uh, in the teachings of Lumpur Child and Sumato was has always been that um, that the practice of Dhamma is not something that uh, should be confined to the meditation hall or to the the, uh, the sitting mat, um, but rather the the purpose of formal practice and uh, say retreat situations or uh, times of uh, intense or uh, intense or focused uh, Dhamma practice is not that they are sort of special and good and that's the real practice and the rest is is not but rather uh, the times of retreat uh, and uh, very um, sort of singularly focused attention on the on formal practice this is kind of uh, the this is the not real practice <laughs> this is the preparation for the real practice uh, and that the um, the the bringing of the skills that we learn here uh, in this kind of environment, uh, they really uh, they bear they bear fruit, and they're they're brought their true value is realized out amongst the um, uh, the everyday interactions that we have with uh, our families, uh, our work colleagues, the people on the street, um, the uh, the rest of the uh, the human family and the living world that we that we interact with. That's uh, um, so if uh, if you like uh, if you're learning a musical instrument at least in the, the the school that I went to there used to be these little music rooms that were about um, two meters by three meters with, a, <laughs> with a, a piano and a door and a window and there were tiny little spaces and uh, but you you would use them to practice the your particular instrument in and uh, uh, the point was not to be in the music room doing your scales uh, and just uh, learning your piece over and over and over but the point of being in the music room was to develop the skills so that you could uh, be out on the stage or, or be out in the in the world and you could uh, perform your piece or you you uh, you had uh, say a, a particularly sterile or contained or orderly environment to develop those skills but then the purpose was was to uh, to be able to um, they employ those skills outside of that little box, that, that environment. So, uh, personally, I, I love retreats and uh, and uh, the uh, environment of the retreat center, uh, the monastic retreat that we have every winter for three months, is uh, in many respects the most precious time of the year. But if we if we hold it in mind that that's the real practice, and the the other nine months of the year is just making do, or you know you're your two ten-day retreats at Amaravati is your real life, and the rest is just yeah, <laughs> this kind of filler that uh, you, you you tolerate uh, begrudgingly. Uh, 
then uh, we're, we're seeing things in uh, uh, an unhelpful, unskillful, I would say, and I would say un, unrealistic way. So there are a number of questions come up, or people ask about um, how to carry on the, the practice, how to sustain these kind of skills or qualities in a working environment, in the family, in uh, interactions, and so forth. And hopefully the emphasis on this, in this retreat upon attitude, on the, the, uh, the internal um, process of receiving a thought and feeling and perception and how it, it's held in the heart and that the, the central um, uh, importance of, um, say, the attitude that is, is developed and maintained towards the, the world's sort of outside, you know, the, of sight, sound, smell, taste and touch, and the world inside of thought and memory, feeling, imagination uh, and so forth. That uh, the emphasis on, on attitude uh, is something that is, uh, is designed to be a, a skill that can be used outside the environment of the retreat center because um, even when you leave the gates of Amaravati and you're down the Leighton Buzzard Road <laughs> Uh, or uh, you're heading off into the, the, the broad world, still there's sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, <laughs> thinking, remembering, imagining. It, it's all, it's, it's the same, um, uh, say, field of experience. But we, uh, what we can take with us is the, the attitude with which that is all received and, and processed, the way that is, is held in the heart. And that, uh, as we've been saying in a few of the talks and instructions, you know, when we recognize that the world happens here, and that the world ends here, the, the world is received here and known here, um, then there's a, a, a different way of, of relating to that. There's a different way of, um, say, integrate, uh, helping all of the aspects of, of the world of, uh, and of our own being to to. Uh, to be integrated. In, in terms of uh, sustaining that attitude, or and then or exercising that skillful attitude of uh, ex, uh, radical acceptance and uh, attunement, um, of uh, learning to recognize um, liking and disliking, approval and disapproval, without confusion. Then uh, this is particularly helpful in in certain areas, uh, and um, so well, the, the first area maybe to consider is that of communication, uh, because the primary way, uh, I mean, we, we most of us identify very strongly with being a human, right? I don't think I'm being too presumptuous. We pretty probably most of us uh, are uh, fairly focused on being part of the human family. Okay, and if some of you are thinking, "What do you mean?" <laughs> okay, fine, no, fine. Um, but uh, most of us are focused on being part of the human family and then part of the the living world in general, but particularly focused on being uh, uh, part of the human world. And the primary way in which we um, we interact with the rest of the human world is through speech, either 
either the spoken word or the written word or the, the, the tweeted word. I don't have a Twitter account or a Facebook account or Instagram or Snapchat. I'm, I have no social media presence that I'm aware of. Anyway. <clears throat> Somebody made a Wikipedia page for me. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> stay focused on the topic. Yeah. Uh, so the, there are a huge variety of ways in which speech functions nowadays for many people, for most people. And so that uh, speech and the word and language forms the bridge between us and other human beings in the main part. We have non-verbal non communication with other people, um, uh, different ways of relating with others just through body language and you know, way, the way you drive side by side on the road and uh, or you join a queue together where you're not speaking. Um, but in the main part, the, uh, the, uh, the majority of, of, um, of connection that we have with human beings and particularly where there's emotional loading is through speech people that you work with, the people in your family, your parents, your children, your siblings, your partners, uh, your colleagues, your fellow meditators, uh, that uh, it's, uh, it's through speech that we um, build the fabric of our uh, of human family and we, we uh, maintain that in the main, in the main part. So uh, because of this, the speech and how we connect with each other has an in enormously important um, role to play so uh, sometimes I, I wonder whether it would be good to have a 10-day a, a retreat that's that where we don't have noble silence but it's a right speech retreat that'd be really challenging <laughs> but uh, in uh, but I, I'm kind of joking but I'm kind of not joking because um, uh, that that is such an, an important area for us to develop uh, mindfulness and awareness, and to get to know this, the uh, the speech habits that we have, and also, um, as I've said a few times, the purpose of this whole thing is ending suffering, or at least reducing suffering. And um, the the more we can understand uh, speech or bring uh, wise attention uh, and mindfulness to the to the spoken word and to our communications then that can go a long way to helping to reduce suffering for ourselves and, and for others and to help to establish a, a quality of not just of, of harmony within ourselves but also ways of functioning effectively in the world being able to uh, uh, say help the others and, and be uh, be uh, say available for others to do the, the work that we want to do to uh, to uh, be a, of a benefit productive in the in the work and efforts that we make in the world the, the more that we are able to uh, be uh, aware of, of uh, speech and and develop skillful speech habits that can be immensely beneficial for ourselves and the people that we're talking to <laughs> talking talking with oh, maybe is better because it's, it's easy to talk at uh, rather than to, to talk with. So uh, in, in the classical teachings, um, the, 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 when the Buddha speaks about 
speech is kind of interesting in the in, in the um, majority of teachings about the the uh, the precepts uh, precept number four gets more page space often than the other four precepts put together so the samavaja uh, the uh, the development of right speech and the um, the 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 fourth precept gets more coverage than than all of the others and i don't think that's by mistake <laughs> and uh and so it was i was kind of reflecting on this i thought that when looking at the uh, the scriptural teachings about the precepts it really struck me like oh, that's really interesting that the the that um the samawaj or the that right speech is is spelled out in quite a lot of detail and that and the the fourth precept is often broken up into into uh, four separate parts. Like when the Buddha is talking about the different kinds of unwholesome activity, um, that speech is there's, there's four different sections for for speech. That uh, and and it, it puzzled me. That's really interesting. Why does why does speech get so much page space, even more than you know, killing or stealing, sexual misconduct? Uh, uh, intoxicants, you know, speech gets as much page space literally as, as the other, the other four put together. And uh, but then it was through reflecting on that I realized, well, that's kind of the the main way that we we function in relationship to each other on an everyday basis. It's it's through talking, through speaking, and so that uh, that's where we can create the most trouble and where we can also create the most benefit. Um, we're we're talking to people far more often than we're killing them, or stealing from them, <laughs> or engaging in sexual misconduct with them, hopefully. <laughs> and so that, uh, so I think yeah, that's really true. That's so uh, that's the primary way in which we interact with each other, and so that's probably why the Buddha. I'm, I'm you know second guessing the Buddha. This is not always a good idea, but I think well that's probably the the reason why is because that's the main means of connection. That we have with other people is through speech. Therefore, it needs that much more close attention. So, in the classical teachings, the the, the four different parts of of, uh, of the um, speech or the the modes of speech that the Buddha talks about is firstly to abandon lying, to give up lying, false speech. And uh, it's kind of interesting that uh, there's a there's a comment made in one of the Jataka stories of the the Buddha's. Uh, the, the uh, 550 uh, stories of the Buddha's previous lives, there's a comment made in one of the Jataka stories where it says, during the many, many, many uh, previous lifetimes of, of the Bodhisattva, then he killed, uh, pe he killed other people, he killed living beings, he stole, he, uh, he raped women, he abducted people's wives, he, uh, he uh, used intoxicants. Um, but during the course of, of all those uncountable lifetimes, after he'd made the, the vow of a bodhisattva, he never once told a deliberate lie. Because uh, false speech is anathema to the practice of Dhamma. That's really that's a powerful statement. So maybe you think, oh, okay, all the rest is okay, right, Ajahn? So <laughs> you, can, you can be a bodhisattva and you can... As long as you don't lie, you're cool, right? No, that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that that the the full speech has a has a particular carries a particular weight that it's it's so completely and directly counter to the practice of Dhamma, which means truth and reality, that it's it's completely anathema to 
to the Dhamma. So it's uh, from the time that the Buddha makes the, the vow as a bodhisattva until full in, uh, until full enlightenment and, and after, then he cannot deliberately tell a lie. So abandoning false speech, then uh, uh, on the positive side, then he said the, uh, that uh, to uh, abandon false speech, then one uh, instead practices uh, uh, you know, honesty, that one, uh, one is uh, speaking in a way that is, is um, reliable, is dependable. P uh, your speech is, is, uh, uh, is trustworthy. People can rely on your word. If you say you're going to do something, that you do it. If you, uh, if you are, are um, saying something, people know that it's, it's true. Um, to be speaking in a in a way that is um, say uh, uh, representing the truth. So if you know something, you'll say you know it. If you don't know something, you won't say that you, you'll say that you don't know it. So there's a a truthfulness and an honesty in speech. And then the second one is abandoning uh, malicious speech. So this is backbiting, gossiping. Uh, fault finding with, with other people, particularly behind their backs. Uh, and so abandoning malicious speech instead, uh, and he says one doesn't repeat here, uh, uh, well, it doesn't repeat what's heard here to people over there in order to create division there, and one doesn't repeat there what one has heard here in order to cause division here. <laughs> that you're, you're using your speech to unite the divided. You're using speech to conduce to, to harmony, to concord, rather than to conduce to division and conflict, to 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 um, to uh, say to uh, be separating others or, or causing uh, conflict, and uh, <clears throat> with, with these these principles, also it's uh, it's not just the behavior, but also when uh, when we act in those ways, there's an effect on the heart. So if if there's if you deliberately tell a lie if I if I say something that's untrue, ouch! It hurts. There's a, there's a painfulness, and when and on the other end of the spectrum, when you say something that you know is true and and is um, that is uh, you know that others can rely on your word. If you say you're going to do something that you're, you're true to your word, what happens in your heart? There's a there's a glow. There's a comfort. There's an there's an ease there. Uh, you don't have to def if you don't lie. You don't have to defend the lie, as uh, Shakespeare put it. What a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. I can't remember which play that comes in, but <laughs> I remember the quote. There's a lot of deception in Shakespeare's plays. So <laughs> what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. So if you don't lie, you don't have to sustain the lie. Whew. It's a lot less work, you know. <laughs> you don't have to worry that they will find out because uh, you, you've got nothing to hide. Your life can be an open can be an open book. So, uh, similarly, abandoning malicious speech and practicing speech that is conducive to concord, then when you are speaking in a kind of malicious way, backbiting, finding fault with people, telling stories about others behind their backs, or 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 talking. Um, Talking people down, as they say, like to uh, bringing people down and making kind of snide remarks uh, to to belittle people. And um, I'm not. And by the way, I'm not reading anybody's mind. 
anyone think, oh, how did he know? I'm just, this is statistics, not psychic power. It's just the way we are as human beings. So, um, so when we act in that way, what happens in your heart? There's a kind of shriveling in the heart when you're not, when there's that sort of nasty snide, um, uh, sort of fault finding or being superior to others. That it's a, there's a, a, a tightness in the heart. But similarly, when there's a, an effort to bring others together to be a force of unity of concord similarly there's a there's a a, a joyfulness there's a as an ease there's a, a brightness in the heart and the third one is abandoning uh harsh speech so swearing um use using your speech as a weapon to attack others to, and that doesn't and, and harsh speech doesn't just mean um doesn't just mean swearing or using foul language it can also uh, and, and speaking as a brit i know we have we're famous for our acidic wit but uh, you can <coughs> uh, the, the 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 skilled uh, british speaker can can uh, can engage in harsh speech with with the merest kind of oh interesting uh, oh that's that's nice. <laughs> well, what you mean is, how awful! How on earth could you wear that? You know, well, did you cook this on purpose? <laughs> is it supposed to taste this way? So that uh, that would I, I would suggest would all come under the under harsh speech, that kind of um, uh, using your speech as a way of attacking others or um, as a, a force of of aggression and um, that uh, <clears throat> the counterpoint to that that we can engage in is using speech which is which is a uh, gentle which is um, say conducive to to peacefulness which is a um say uh, something that you would be happy to to say in front of anybody and anyone can hear that uh, <coughs> the the, uh, the kind of speech that is um, say uh, uh, is uh, one that will you know uh, be uh, say treasured by others that they would, they would like to keep those words and and uh, and uh, say pass them on to to others Sometimes you you the, a very clever put down you might remember and pass on to others. <laughs> a particularly clever nasty remark, but uh, um, the so that uh, that uh, the the opposite of harsh speech is to even if you have to say something that's that's um, that you know is going to be painful to someone, and you know uh, that thing, yeah, this is going to be difficult. Um, so then you choose words that are, are so respectful and polite and say um i'm not sure that the pink and the purple really go together that well i mean some people might find that a bit harsh on the eye you know rather than you know what the hell you, what the hell were you thinking <laughs> so uh that uh that way of of choosing your words even when you have to be uh, harsh to be finding ways to speak that uh, are uh, not an attack, or that uh, even uh, um, things that will be difficult 
or really unwanted. If it's coming, you find that if it's coming from the right place, if the intent behind it is gentle, then you can say things that are, are really quite, um, uh, you know, challenging to others, uh, because it, and they people will, will often be able to discern the intention behind it is not an attack, but rather it's you want to help them or you you're pointing out a, a difficult situation. I remember uh, years ago we have a, a set of of um, principles that we use in terms of giving for giving feedback as to, as a monastics that uh, when you want to give feedback, i.e. <laughs> say something to someone that they're, they're not going to want to hear, then there's a number of principles that we're supposed to employ. One, stick to the facts rather than your suppositions. Uh, two, establish a heart of loving kindness. Uh, three, um, ask permission before you bring up the, the topic. Like, say, um, uh, there's something I'd like to bring up. Would, would there be a time that's convenient? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So you have to ask permission. Um, you have to choose a time and a, a place and a situation that's not going to be embarrassing or difficult. So, so I would say, Venerable Supanya, can I talk to you about your... <laughs> so I wouldn't bring up something that was delicate in front of the whole group. And then the fifth one is the real kicker. That's uh, you have to be free of the same fault yourself. <laughs> so, so that can take a while. Yeah. But uh, anyway, some uh, a number of years ago, there was uh, uh, one of the senior monks in, the, in this community. I was getting very upset by some of the the things he did in the way that he operated. But um, uh, I, there was a lot of righteous ind indignation, like, "How can he do that? That's outrageous! That's so, that, that's totally stupid! You know, senior monks shouldn't act that way." Grr, grumble, grumble, grumble. So um, uh, I uh, I thought, well, I better wait until I've calm down a bit until I really have a, 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 an attitude of loving kindness. And as it turned out, it was a couple of years went by. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. And it was when both of us were not on home ground. We were both not in our, our home place. And the, the, and the issue came up with respect. A very similar thing came up with respect to another monk. And uh, so there we were in this sort of neutral territory and this the subject came up about this kind of behavior um and uh and an incident was being being talked about and and uh and so then suddenly i realized this is the moment <laughs> you got you know, you got 3 seconds to introduce the topic and said well actually ajan um I, i've seen you do something similar and i i and and because he was what he was saying was that oh such a, this monk did such and such and you know i was really upset about that I thought, okay, this is the moment. <laughs> so I said, well, actually, Ajahn, you know, I've, uh, um, if it's okay to mention it, I've seen you do similar things. He said, yeah, really? And because it wasn't, uh, uh, it was, uh, uh, say, coming from a, a, a place of harshness or an attack, but rather um, it was very, it was sort of appropriate to the moment. And also because I'd seen this same monk that I was talking to repeat these behaviors over and over and over again and get into endless kind of conflict. And I'd really, within myself, got to the place where like, I was thinking, poor guy, he just keeps creating these, these situations of, he keeps clashing 
and getting frustrated and he doesn't see that the 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 clashing is coming from him charging in with his head down <laughs> butting into people that's where the, the the conflict is coming from poor guy doesn't he see what he's doing to himself so it was it's gone from wanting him to be different so i would be happy but to <laughs> to like wanting to help him because of him causing himself such difficulty and the fact that it would please me was more of a secondary thing and so then uh, uh, so he, because it was coming from a more positive place, I was able to say, "Well, actually, Ajahn, you know, I've seen you, I've uh, seen you do that a few times yourself." And he said, "Really?" I said, "Yeah, like this time, you know, this occasion, this occasion, this occasion." <laughs> so I, I seemed to have a little list that had formed. You know, I've got a a memory which is uh, which is sometimes useful, sometimes not not that useful. So I was able to um, give him a few incidences. Oh wow, yeah, that's really true. God, wow, I, yeah, I never saw. That. Yeah, I do do that, don't I? And and that was I was able to be more straight and sort of uh, and forthright than I would have dared fantasize. You know, in my that when I when I was sort of rehearsing my my script and different uh, previously, like when I tell him, I'm going to tell him, and I was able to say more than I'd even fantasized. To, about talking saying to him and he was able to take it and was really appreciative because it wasn't an attack it was a, the the voice of a friend wanting to, to help the situation so then then the last kind of speech then is um uh, idle chatter oh dear <laughs> so i think the probably the whole of twitter and the uh, the idle chatter. Um, so this is just pointless speech, just filling the uh, filling the air with with chit chat and 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 gossip, and uh, so that the Buddha um, discourages that. And instead, just to if something needs to be said, then say it. If nothing needs to be said, be quiet. <gasps> what a concept, you know. Uh, and then uh, <clears throat> also to um, to be uh, uh, choosing your words carefully, and when when uh, and I I I, I fully acknowledge I, I talk a lot and uh, can often say too much. I'm, I've spent my life when I'm sort of <clears throat> just warming to my subject, watching people look at their watches. And <laughs> so I'm familiar with talking too much. My grandfather, when when I was about five years old, we my grandfather's. Uh, was German and my grandmother was Belgian. Every summer, we'd uh, uh, the whole family would go across the channel to my grandmother's family hotel in in Ostend in Belgium. And it was about a three-hour boat ride across the channel, and uh, we'd be in this this cabin together on the on the on the ferry on the mail boat. And um, I was a very talkative lad, and my grandfather was this very very kind of quiet and patient. Um, restrained uh, an old German gentleman and uh, so on this particular occasion he offered me sixpence if I could be quiet for five minutes <laughs> five minutes and sixpence was serious money in those days it's not much now but <laughs> and I nearly exploded just <laughs> the the restraint of, of stopping the flow for five minutes was, was almost too much I think I did it just out of desire for the money but uh, 
just to give him five minutes of quiet where I would just stop the stop the flow. But that in terms of cultivating skillful speech, um, again, the, the speech which, to cultivate speech, which is a treasure, you know, how, to, how can you say just the, the right amount of words, what's needed, and then leave it, and then choose your words so that people say, oh yeah, that was, that was well put, or that was, you know, that was, um, that was good to hear. And that, uh, that if something's not worth talking about, then you, you leave it alone. So that uh, so those are the four sort of classical aspects of of, uh, of skillful speech, and um, that they're worthy of uh, reflecting on. In terms of, of uh, uh, communications, and maybe it's a part of uh, of bringing mindfulness to the the realm of speech. Um, you know, being recording conversations where people are swearing at you, <laughs> or other people are using harsh language, or other people are exaggerating, or uh, the, the, you get caught up in the flow of, a, of, an, of an exchange or a dialogue or a conversation. So it's very easy to, to uh, get uh, swept up by, by the energy. But these, these principles are very helpful to, to bear in mind. And, and, say, and considering what I was saying at the beginning about um, using speech to conduce to peacefulness for yourself and to, to support what is wholesome, you know, uh, very often when you're in a conversation, uh, we are asked, or we're, an opinion is invited. Like, what do you think about such and such? Yeah, uh, I, you know, I can't believe that uh, you know the government is doing this, or that the boss is doing that, or uh, you know, dad just did this, or you know, my crazy sister just did that. And so that uh, uh, there's a huge number of times when we're in conversation. And we're we're asked for an opinion, or, or that that's drawn out of us, or what do you feel about this, or, or you know, what what do you want? And we forget that we can say, "I have no opinion." Right? What a concept! <laughs> and because I found for myself that more often than not, when people say, "What do you think about this?" the true answer would be, "I don't think about it." <laughs> Or uh, I don't really care. It's it's not that important to me. It's not something that's on my mind or something that's particularly significant. And um, so again, you don't want to say that kind of thing as an attack. Like you know, I have no I have no opinion. <laughs> like what an idiot you are for even bringing up the subject. But uh, to uh, when when there's a conversation going on and someone's very excited or very upset or very you know, very uh, concerned. Uh, to develop mindfulness around that and what's being said, and to consider, well, do I do I really have any feeling about this? Is this important to me? Do I do I have a, an opinion to to offer, uh, or not? And uh, it's I find it's extraordinarily helpful. Just uh, and sometimes people are just very very startled, and it just changes the dynamic when you say. Actually, I I don't really have an opinion. <laughs> it's not something that uh, that's very uh, that I think about very much. And again, if you're if you're saying that from a, a a a peaceful and friendly, respectful place, it's not taken as an attack, but it's uh, it's uh, rather it helps people to have a perspective. Like, oh, I guess yeah, it is possible not to be that that concerned or to not uh, make an issue out of it.
maybe an even more uh, important thing is when we're having a conversation. And uh, again, I'm speaking from personal experience, when the the interest seems to be waning, you know, you're, you're saying something and the, the other person's starting to look at their watch or they're looking restless. And, and, the, and so there's this need to make it more interesting or to, to get their attention or to impress to um, uh, so you, you start to illustrate you know, to color the story a little bit you can start to emphasize or exaggerate and uh, <clears throat> so I'm, I'm very prone to exaggeration and to bending the facts or using imagination or uh, uh, let's say um, augmented uh, an augmented interpretation of history <laughs> it's a kind of politically correct way of talking about it. So basically, inflated. Um, you're just using uh, a half-remembered thing, or just uh, just making something up and say uh, and presenting it as a fact, because you kind of half remember reading an article about it sometime, but you you want to use it to to back up your statement, and so you you um, you bring things in, or you 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 kind of make statements that are. Yeah, are exaggerations or inflated or not particularly? You're not sure that they're true. And uh, when I came into the monastery and and uh, was living amongst the people keeping a standard of of right speech, and uh, um, it was just shock, startling, shocking, horrifying. All of those, <laughs> just to see how much I, I exaggerated and how much how easy it was for me to to be quoting things or making statements or um, trying to be authoritative about things that I really didn't know that much about, <laughs> but I wanted to be the authority, being a kind of know-all type, and uh, and so uh, my advice and my experience is it's quite right to say, actually, I don't really know that, <laughs> or um, to, uh, to be honest, uh, I read an article about that a, a, a few years ago, and I think it says something like that, but I'm not really sure. You can't stop mid-sentence and say, wait a minute, it didn't really happen that way. It's quite legal. It's, it's quite, and and, uh, and again, it can be create an interesting dialogue in its own right. When you say, actually, it didn't really happen that way. <laughs> I'm just, I just felt I was losing your attention and I needed to spice things up a bit. But, uh, and, uh, and so then you, you can steer things a bit differently. But that's, in terms of, of being faithful to to the truth and being uh, committed to the truth uh, it's a it's a lovely skill to develop and to uh to see that um you uh, don't have to once you've already started on a story you don't have to keep going just because you started it <laughs> you can stop and say Actually, this is really pointless. <laughs> it didn't really happen that way. Or um, uh, the, uh, there's no need to to carry on to, or to commit to a, a bending of the truth or an outright lie. Uh, it's uh, there's no need to. You can just stop and say, "No, on second thoughts, it wasn't really that way." Or that that's not really important. Or I don't really know that, but. Uh, I'd like it to be that way. <laughs> Maybe one of the, the most important things in terms of communication is uh, 
how, particularly when you've got some sort of emotionally loaded uh, dialogue that's upcoming, you've got a conflict going on in your in your family, uh, in your you know, the, the people that you live with, in your community, or your your housemates, uh, in your workplace, and the mind creates scripts. You start scripting what you're going to say when you see that person, or they're really upset with you, or you're upset with them, or you're, or you're you're excited about uh, meeting someone, or you're really keen and you really want to get things right. You've got a job interview coming up, and what you want to say and how you want to impress, and uh, so it's natural for the mind to to script uh, things. And uh, again, it was kind of surprising to me. Uh, I didn't realize how much I did this until I came to the monastery and started meditating. I, I was never really a lay Buddhist, so giving advice to lay people is, I'm a, is I always feel a bit of a fraud because I, I never actually was a lay Buddhist. I, sort of, I was already in the monastery when I encountered Buddhism. So I, I, I was in, which might sound a bit weird, but I was, I was traveling around northeast Thailand and I needed a cheap place to stay. And so I ended up in Wat Pananachat, and and uh, I didn't really like the idea of rules or orthodox religion. And so I thought, well, maybe two or three days, uh, yeah, if I have to. So, but then in the monastery, once I was in the monastery, there I encountered Theravada Buddhism. So, uh, so I never really was a, a practicing lay Buddhist, um, but I've given a lot of advice to. <laughs> People over the years, regardless, even though I'm not an expert, you know, again, I'm happy to be an authority about something I know nothing about. But uh, it was shocking to me to see how much the mind scripted conversations, what it's going to be like when I see the Ajahn, or what, the, what the, uh, I need to say when we have this meeting, or and and then. Um, when I was in Thailand, I was there for a couple of years, and I came over here to England when Chithurst Monastery first opened up, and um, and uh, it was amazing over the the first four or five years, as I watched the, the mind writing all these scripts. No one ever kept to the script. I spent all this time and effort <laughs> writing these scenarios, and no one else would follow them. You know, I was like. So uh, you know that when he, uh, Ajahn Sumedho, when he hears this, you know he'll be um, he'll be really he'll, he'll be really uh, irritated, but I'll I'll uh, I'll persuade him it's a good idea by saying yes yes you know this 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 and this, and so then uh, <clears throat> so then you're all you're all ready that he's not going to like this idea, and you say um, Tanajana, I think it'd be a good idea if we put the the shed over there. Oh yes. <laughs> what? You're not supposed to agree. <laughs> I got my list of good of good reasons that I have to convince you with. You can't just say yes like that. And so it was uh, it was amazing uh, how to me how over the there's um, I think it's about five or six years. It was until I, I I went up to the little branch monastery in Northumberland in Harnham that. On not on a single occasion did anybody ever follow the script. So whenever my mind was sort of uh, was sort of preparing, and it wasn't I was wasn't as though I was doing it on purpose. It just sort of, my mind just did it on its own. 
But uh, on no no occasion did anyone ever follow the script. Not once in five or six years. What I found was that after that amount of time, the, the thinking mind just thought, this is not working. <laughs> so it just kind of stopped on its own. But I was watching it happen over and over and over and over again, and how you're sort of you're ready and you're you're, you're coming up with your lines and you're so you're saying your lines, but they're not saying their lines. And so we we create these these scenarios and we create each other, so that as I said, you know, the, oh, the, this person's going to be really upset or this person's going to be really pleased or or I'm really I'm really afraid of. Uh, yeah, what that person's gonna feel if uh, if this happens or that happens, and yeah, you know, she's gonna feel like that, and then I have to say this to her, and then she'll feel like, and when I say that, then she's gonna say this, and then when she says that, then I'll say, and so we we create each other, we uh, we carry, uh, we we create each other, we create our own persona, and we create other people's persona. My mother, my father, my sisters, my brothers, my boss, my workers, my colleagues, my fellow monastics, the nuns, the, the, the monks, the novices, anagarikas, the lay people, the retreatants. Yeah. I can create you and carry you all around. Them. I've got to give a talk to them. Oh dear. What am I going to say? You know, I want to make them happy. What can I say that will please them, that will be make them inspired? And um, you realize the more that the mind creates them or that person, that it's it's a burden. We, we then, having created those, all those people, we have to carry them around. And uh, the, the uh, what we dis what you discover is that the and the the use of this kind of practice we've been looking at this week is that we don't have to not just create. We don't have to create ourselves, but also we don't have to create other people either. And the the more that we don't create each other, if you can follow that, <laughs> the more we refrain from creating each other. That when there is a meeting, rather than having created you or my impression of you as a woman, as a man, as someone I know, someone I don't know, that uh, the the more I don't create you, that when we actually meet, then the encounter is something that's alive and and useful and uh, uh, and is in in tune with reality if i'm carrying you around and i've got my list of things that you are you're like this and you're like that and i like this aspect and i don't like that aspect and i'm confused by this aspect and and i'm worried about that aspect then when we meet all i meet is my projections about you i meet uh, a man or a woman or i meet someone who's italian or french or german or english or that the uh, I'm, I meet my projections. I don't actually meet you. And uh, oftentimes, in terms of mindfulness of speech, what we realize is happening is there's two monologues going on. When you're, when you're talking with someone, you're not, you, we're not really talking with each other. <laughs> we're talking at each other or past each other. You know, you've got, and have you ever had that experience where you're, you're supposedly talking with someone and you're just waiting for them to pause so you can carry on? With your monologue, and they're doing the same. They're just waiting for you to, to take a breath so that they, they can carry on with their monologue. So that, there's no communication going on at all. You're in the same room, and there's noises being made, but that's it. There's no there's no communication. There's no communion. No communication. 
So uh, when when we uh, develop mindfulness of speech, then it's uh, uh, and it's also it's kind of it works with with writing as well. I've written quite a, a few things over the years, and uh, what I, I d discovered um, early on was that the what you're writing is for the reader, not for the writer. And in a conversation, you need a receiver as well as a transmitter. It's not just a proclamation. It's not just me making a noise to the universe. That if if there isn't someone receiving, there isn't a communication going on. It's just broadcasting. You know, there's the for a communication to happen, then the other has to be listening to you, and you have to listen to them. And often, and the kind of advice I often have to give is, that how can uh, people say, how can I get my children to listen to me? And I and I would say, well, do you listen to them? <gasps> You're not supposed to say that, Ajahn. <laughs> That's not your line. <laughs> You're supposed to be giving them advice. You know, you should always listen to your mother. You know. <laughs> but I say, you know, children learn by example. So if if you're just talking at them and never listening to them, then there's no there's not a communication going on. So why should they listen to you if you don't listen to them? Gasp. So, in terms of say wanting to communicate, wanting to get through uh, to others, the, the uh, important element is to uh, first of all not to create them uh, and not to fix a particular idea about them, but also to listen, to uh, to be ready to hear what that other person is saying, and not just sort of listening in order to prove how they're wrong. <laughs> you know, the, sort of, uh, Fill, you know, the, the, as soon as the words come in, the, the, the mind, the, the inner commentator is is finding fault. But uh, again, to not create yourself, like I don't agree with that. I've always objected to that. Well, you know, he's a, he's a socialist or she's a Tory. You know, that person's a they belong to UKIP. How can they? How can I hear them? You know, you know this is a, they're a Mahayanist. I mean, this is a Theravada monastery. You know, so you're uh, in order to. To develop skillful speech, also skillful listening is part of that. And letting your own preconceptions or prejudgments, your own biases, be be recognized and to, to not let that dominate the picture. And then you can actually then you can have a real communication. <laughs> but uh, if uh, we we have a place here, you know, Amravati was set up as a place that was uh, intended to be welcoming for people of, of all religious dispositions or backgrounds and it was very much the intent of of Lumpur Sumato. and so that and it, it still has that spirit so we get uh we get uh, say for the Saturday meditation class or different events we have regular intermonastic dialogues with catholic and anglican monastics uh, uh, christian uh, monastic communities that come here we've got a a um a visit from the conservative muslim association coming in july that's Muslim members of the Conservative Party. No. <laughs> Seriously, a, they want to come here. They, they asked how many, how many, how many people could they bring? Like fifty, hundred. Yeah. So uh, the um, if I judge people like, well, you know, they're a Christian or they're Mahayanist or they're a, they're a Muslim or, or you know, they vote UKIP, <laughs> then there's no there's no communication going on. 
and if it, if I see someone like typecaster, that's a woman, that's a man, that's a yeah, a, a, a novice, an, an agarico, that's a, a that's just a child, you know. Then, then we uh, we're just talking to our projections, and we don't really communicate. So, I, I realize people think I'm a bit crazy, but when they they families come here and they have their the the young children, they might only be like six months old or a year old, or even sometimes like two months old. Yeah. I'll talk to the child as a full scale human being. I'll say, oh, "Welcome to Amravati. Very glad you could come. Uh, we're we're happy that you've made a visit today." And I I realize that some of the parents think this monk is really loopy, <laughs> but I feel it's it's important. It's just because someone's got a small body and they've only been alive for a couple of months doesn't doesn't diminish what they are and that um, and uh, you know that if you if you talk down to someone as a child or just an anagarica <laughs> yeah then then that they become that you know just that we 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 create the world through our perceptions and our, our habits but if we recognize well this is just a, a convenient fiction it's just a, a role that part of what a person is is an anagarica or a two, you know, two-year-old, uh, but part of it is not. Part of it is more than that. Is is greater than that. Then uh, there can be a, a real uh, uh, connection uh, in a significant way. Just to finish with an interesting little story about about the uh, family visits and communications. So, so this is about three months ago now. So a family came. Uh, they were an Indian family, um, and the, the there was a grandparents and a mother and a little daughter. They all came together, and uh, the grandparents had come out of East Africa. They've been part of the um, I think in Uganda when Idi Amin uh, threw all the Indian families out of out of uh, uh, Uganda back in the seventies. Um, anyway, they came to Britain, and then the 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 the, the younger woman, she uh, was brought by her parents to Amravati when she was a little girl. So she said, "I really wanted to bring my daughter here because my parents brought me here when I was little, and this place was always don't get to visit that, that often, but this place is very important to me. So I wanted to give my my daughter that that chance to to come here." And and so then we were chatting, and she, and then the mother said, "Can I ask a question?" She had a and then she said, had a dumber question asking about. So I responded to her dumber question, and then the the, the little girl said, uh, uh, "Can I ask a question too?" I said, "Certainly." And she said, uh, "How many people have I been before I was this person?" So she's about seven, eight years old, and I said, "Well, <laughs> being you know, your, your habitual knowledge box and authority," I said, "You know." Then I said, "Well, you know, the Buddha said that." Uh, it, um, if you took all the blood from the from our injuries or the our head being cut off uh, from all the previous lifetimes that we had, it would more than fill all the seven oceans of the world. So basically, a lot. Um, uh, and then I said, but you know, it's it's also the the case that uh, in uh, in our many lifetimes, you might not always have been a human being. You might have been a devatar. You might have been an animal, or even as a person, you might not always have been a uh, a, a woman, you know, you could have been, you could have been your own great grandfather. Yeah, and so this is, a, yeah. and so then, uh, then we sort of paused for a moment. I said, "So, uh, what made you ask the question?" And she said, "Well, I know who I was last time, but I wanted to know who I'd been before that." 
So this is with her mum, you know, sitting there and the grandparents behind her. And she said, um, <clears throat> yeah, my my grandmother's mother, my great-grandmother, she died a year before I was born. So that's who I was before. And then she turned around to her mother and said, so I'm older than you are. <laughs> so tapped her mum on the knee. And quite straightforward. Yeah, so, so, I, so I'm older than you are. So... <clears throat> And uh, and then we had a very interesting conversation. <laughs> so there was a, this this little child uh, who, on one level, was a little child, but also she was quite happily saying she was older than her. You know, she was a that she had uh, certain memories of being her mother of her her, her grandmother. <laughs> so it's a little story. So some of you might hear that and think, "Oh, humbug! You know, this isn't Buddhism. This is just superstition." But it's a story that happened here at Amravati. That, that exchange, those exchanges occurred, whether it's based on fact or not, is uh, or reality is another thing. But that exchange certainly occurred, and it was. But it was very lovely because uh, also for me, how the the parents, the, the little girl's mother and her gra and her grandparents, were totally cool with her uh, speaking in that way. They didn't say, "Oh, don't be so silly," you know, stupid girl. Don't make, don't make up stories. They were just sitting there going, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was, uh, and so I, I thought it was one of those instances where it's really important. Yeah, that's why we respect the whole being. We don't just typecast so that uh, the, the, the little child that you meet might have been your own great-grandmother or grandfather. Yeah. But, uh, the, the, uh, and in, in terms of Buddhist mythology, they say that... Um, Every uh, every other human being that you meet has been your mother so, in a previous lifetime. So that in in the Tibetan tradition they use this this phrase "all mother sentient beings" as a way of reminding you of that. It's also, I think, an encouragement to be respectful to other people, to all other other beings that uh, you know that that uh, could have been uh, your your mother in a, well that was your mother in a previous lifetime. But having said uh, and talked about how I can go on verbally, <laughs> I see that uh, an hour has gone by, so I will offer these thoughts for consideration this evening. <laughs>